I want to encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word with you, to open it to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20 will be our text this morning. If you don't happen to have a copy of the Bible with you, there are hard, copy, uh, hard copies of the Bible located in the back of the chairs near where you are seated. If you happen not to own a Bible, please take that copy of God's Word with you as a gift from our church today. Before I read the passage, I do want to thank you, as I do most every Sunday, for your continued prayers for Emma. She's continuing to do well, uh, still seeing the small movements in her hands as she rotates her wrist, and still becoming just more and more amazed at her cognitive ability. This past week, we started quizzing her on days of the week. So like last night, I said, Emma, tonight is Saturday. Does that mean tomorrow's Tuesday? And she said, no. Is it Wednesday? No. Is it Sunday? She said yes. So we're still amazed at the level of, of the, the things she knows and remembers. So thank you for your prayers and continue to keep praying for her and our family. Well, we're continuing this journey with Abraham, this journey of faith. Because we have to remember that there's nothing that we encounter that has not been encountered already. There's no temptation that we face that has not been faced by God's people. The circumstances may change. There may be different people, different types of temptations. But the same temptations face us all. So follow with me as I read Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. The famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife. Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. The story was told of a CEO who had taken a new job. 
And the outgoing CEO met him one day and said, now sometimes you're going to make the wrong choices. You will. You'll mess up. Count on it. But when that happens, I've prepared three envelopes for you. They're in the middle drawer of the desk. So when the first time occurs that you mess up, open the envelope mark number one. When the second failure occurs, open envelope number two. And then when the third one occurs, open envelope number three. For the first few months, everything went well. Then the new CEO made his first mistake. He goes to the drawer, opens it up, opens envelope number one, and there is a handwritten message from the former CEO that said, blame me. So the new CEO does that. This is the old CEO's fault. He made these mistakes. I inherited these problems. And everybody says, okay, it works out well. Things go well for a while. Then the new CEO makes his second mistake. He goes to the drawer, opens up the drawer, opens up envelope number two, which says, blame the board. So the new CEO does that. It's the board's fault. The board's been a mess. I inherited them. They're the problem. Everybody says, okay, and things go along fine for a while. Until, as you guessed it, he inevitably makes his third mistake. He goes to the drawer, opens up envelope number three, and he reads the message. Prepare three envelopes. <laughs> At some point, we're all going to fail. You can count on it. Every one of us, we're going to make mistakes. We'll exercise bad judgment. We'll sin. That's why it's dangerous to put anyone on a pedestal. When we put a person on a pedestal thinking, well, they're above failure, first of all, we're putting a burden on that person that he or she cannot bear. No one can live up to the expectations of perfection. No one. At some point, that person on the pedestal will fail. In fact, in 2016, the website Wall Street 24-7 posted their list of the least powerful people in the world. This was a list of 50 people who had achieved a level of notoriety, fame, and leadership, yet had fallen. For example, the list contained the name of Bill Ackman, who in 2016 topped the list as the, one of the leading hedge fund managers in the nation but he had lost billions of dollars by placing a bet on Valent Pharmaceuticals whose stock plummeted after federal investigators probed the company's drug pricing practices. Seth Blatter was on that list. He had been the former president of the FIFA, the governing body of world soccer, which is a huge position. But Seth Blatter was accused of racketeering and other ethical violations information with his mistress. Fifty people who had been on a pedestal who became less powerful through some kind of moral collapse or failure. The Bible never tries to cover up the clay feet of those found within its pages. It never presents any of, the, of its characters as being above failure. It certainly never covers up the fact that at times they sinned. Whether it be Peter who denied Jesus, 
Or if it was David, the king, the warrior poet of Israel who committed adultery and then orchestrated a conspiracy of murder to cover up his sin. Or Abram, who lied to protect himself. The Bible is upfront about the failures of those upon its pages. Abraham had entered the land of promise. And he came into the land of promise with quite the entourage. Look back up to verse 5. He took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, that is his nephew, all their possessions and the people they had gathered, and they go out. This is a huge caravan that Abram is leading. He acted in obedience to God. He went into Abraham, and as he goes into the land of Canaan, he is clear about where his faith lies. Follow the progression. And even though we didn't read it, I want to refer back to it. Look at the progression of what Abraham does at the major stopping points along the way. For example, look at verse 6. Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So the question is, why is this particular place pointed out? Well, it's believed that the oak at Shechem, because notice this is drawn out very specifically, was a gathering point where the Canaanites would worship. Because once again, verse 6, six emphasizes Canaanites were in the land. This was a place of pagan worship. It was a grove where they would practice fertility rites in worshiping these false gods. But notice what Abraham does when he is there. He builds an altar. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So what does Abram do? At this place of pagan worship, he builds an altar. An altar to the Lord to clearly proclaim his faith in the one true God. And then he continues on. Notice he passes on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and he pitches his tent there with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. Once again, it's believed this was a place of, of pagan worship. It's in the hill country, a place of trees. And wherever there's trees, usually there are these fertility rites. And what does he do there at the end of verse 8? He builds an altar unto the Lord. He worships. That phrase, called upon the name of the Lord, is a word for worship. And then verse 9. Verse 9 occurs, and it's a little bit ominous in its tone. He journeyed on still going toward the Negev. The Negev is the southernmost part of Israel. It's desert. It's wilderness. And notice there's no mention of an altar being built there. Near Bethel and Ai, there's an altar. Near Shechem, there's an altar. But not in the Negev. Had Abram let his guard down? Since this was not a place that was, was focused on as a place of idol worship, had he become complacent? Now, we don't know, but we do know this. The first steps toward moral failure is failing to worship God. Now, I'm not talking just about institutional worship where you just show up at a building. I mean, we all know that walking into this building does not make you a worshiper any more than walking into McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Just showing up doesn't make a person a worshiper. What I'm referring to is what's going on in your heart. What's going through, through our minds as we gather together? 
to engage in, in the worship of Yahweh with all that we have out of a love, out of need. Because sometimes we come in and we gather to worship and the truth is the flame in our hearts is beginning to die and we come pleading to God, Lord, I need you. You see, coming needy before God, confessing we need him to work in our lives is an act of worship, recognizing that only God can meet that need. The problem occurs when we come in Take our seats and simply go through the motions. No thought about who God is. No thought about why we are singing. You see, worship is like a GPS that keeps us focused upon God. This past Friday, my wife had a chance to go down to Dollywood with my, um, my, my daughter, our daughter, and grandkids and, and Jody's mom met him there. And it was a great day. They got to see the queen herself. Dolly was there. Big day. Of course, I was staying with Emma. And when they got back, they showed me all these pictures they had taken and everything going on. And one of the things that I just love seeing, of course, is my grandchildren's face light up when they are writing different things and doing different things. And one of the things that happened, Elle and my daughter got into one of the cars with Kimball, my two-and-a-half-year-old grandson. Kimball was driving. Now, keep in mind, this is one of those cars that operates on its own, and it's got the huge metal strip in the middle of the roadway that keeps the car going straight, so we were safe. But his face was just sheer joy. He was behind the wheel. And I noticed as they were going along, when he started to veer off, the car would hit that metal strip, and it would bounce back where it was supposed to go all along the way. And he was still joyful. I thought that's what worship is like. Worship's like that metal strip that keeps us going the right way. And we can be joyful because worship guides us to God who meets our needs. It focuses our lives on him and rekindles our focus. And this takes place in our hearts and corporately as we gather together. And that's one of the beautiful aspects of corporate worship is that there is a synergy that takes place where we encourage one another. I'm encouraged by your worship and your worship encourages me. You see, one of the things that Satan has taken is this truth that we can worship on our own yeah we should worship on our own but we substitute that for the gathering of God's people and there is an energy that takes place when we come together just like how exciting it would it be if you went to a college football game say at Nayland Stadium and there was one person in the fan in the stands would that be very exciting no matter what's going on on the field there's like yay but when you gather with 100,000 people, what happens? The excitement builds exponentially to a crescendo where you can't help but being excited. Such is corporate worship. When we come and rejoice in God together, we weep together, we laugh together, we enjoy who God is together. And when worship begins to wane, testing will come. It happened to Abraham in the form of a famine. Notice how in verse 10 it's emphasized that a famine occurred in the land and the famine was severe in the land. Now famine was a common occurrence in the Negev. But this famine brought up to Abraham his responsibilities. Remember, there's a large caravan that he is the leader of. He's the patriarch. He's left his dad back way up in, uh, in the northern part of, of the Middle East. 
Abraham is the man now for this huge entourage, this caravan that is with him. He feels the weight of responsibility. People are looking to him to take care of them. And that responsibility was the doorway through which fear entered. What if I'm not able to provide food for them? What if the famine lasts a long time? What if I fail? So he makes a decision. He decides to go down to Egypt for a brief stay, according to verse 10. Now, there's nothing sinful in and of itself in going to Egypt at this point. Now, later, God's people would be warned about going down into Egypt and seeking help there, but not at this point. Egypt was a world power, perhaps the world power at this time, and it was always a land of plenty because of the Nile. The Nile River provided everything that Egypt needed. But Abram's fear doesn't let up as he makes his way to the land. Notice in verse 11, as they're about to enter the land, he looks at his wife and he says, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance it's amazing because Sarah at this point was in her late 60s notice what he says in verse 12 when they see you they'll say this is my wife and they'll kill me but they'll let you live why would he think this why would he think that they would kill him and let her live we don't know anything historical that the Egyptians were known for killing husbands. Could it be that this was an irrational fear that came about because of his fear? I think there's a good case for that. You see, fear will lead us to make bad decisions. It will cause us to make irrational assumptions about all the what-ifs. In his book, Fearless, Max Lucado points out how fear will possess us and turn us into beastly people. He writes, fear turns us into control freaks. For fear at its center is a perceived loss of control. When life spins wildly, we grab for a component of life we can manage. Our dot, the tidiness of our home, the armrest of a plane, or in many cases, people. The more insecure we feel, the meaner we become. We growl, we bare our fangs. Why? Because we feel cornered. Lucado goes on to mention Martin Niemöller as an extreme example of this. Martin Niemöller was a German pastor who took a stand against Adolf Hitler. When Niemöller first heard Hitler speak in 1933, Niemöller stood at the back of the room and listened. Later that night, Niemöller's wife asked him what he'd learned. And Martin Niemöller responded by saying, I discovered that Herr Hitler is a terribly frightened man. Fear releases the tyrant within. Fear can lead us down one of two roads. Fear can lead us to depend on God as our hope. Where we stop and we say, Lord, this is overwhelming to me. I need you. And we come back to the Psalms that say, I do not trust in horses or chariots, but I trust in the name of the Lord our God. Fear can lead us to the Lord or fear can lead us away from God because we panic and we don't trust him. Fear led Abram away from God. 
goes, notice he made the decision to lie. Verse 13. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Isn't it interesting that he justifies his lie by saying, Sarah, it's really for your best interest. It's for your sake. Now, when you read the scripture, you'll recognize that there's a half-truth in what Abram is saying. Sarah was his half-sister. They shared the same father but different mothers. Now, once again, different culture, different customs, different times. But this half-truth, as my mother used to say, was a whole lie. Tell him you're my sister, that it'll work out. In fact, some Jewish rabbis, they suspect that Abram had developed a plan. Because as Abram's, as Sarah's brother, if suitors came to court her, they would bring gifts to him to basically bribe him to approve of the marriage. And Jewish, many Jewish rabbis believe that Abram had developed this plan that after he had gotten many, many gifts, he and Sarah would sneak back to the Negev under cover of night with all these other possessions added to them. Now, never mind, there could still be a famine. He would go back wealthier than when he came. It's not in the scripture, but it's very possible because his plan was working. The Egyptians saw that, that Sarah was very beautiful. And then something happened. God had other ideas. Verse 15. The princes of Pharaoh saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. Now stop for just a moment and think about this. There's a good chance that there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of people, flooding into Egypt looking for food because of the, the famine. How in the world did the princes of Pharaoh see Sarah. Do you think that was just coincidence? Just a, an accident that they saw her and go back and tell Pharaoh that, man, we saw this beautiful woman. She's not married. I think it was the hand of God. You see, Abram had been in control. He had developed a plan. He was the one in power. But now, when Pharaoh finds out about the beauty of Sarah, Abraham is confronted with the fact that he's not in control. He's not the one with the authority. He's not the one with the power. He's confronted by Pharaoh, who at this point was the most powerful person in that area, in that culture. And he's powerless to stop this plan. So look what happens. The woman's taken into Pharaoh's house. And Abraham is powerless to stop it. Now she's part of Pharaoh's harem. He's put Sarah at risk. And also, he's put the promise of an heir at risk. Remember, God had promised Abram, you'll be the father of many. You'll be the father of a great nation. And that promise was to take place through Sarah. Well, now Sarah is a member of Pharaoh's harem, who later on Pharaoh marries. He took her as his wife. What about the promise? Everything has been put in, at risk because Abraham failed to trust God. God brought about this failure to bring Abraham back to him. See, sometimes there's a gift of grace that we forget. It's the gift of grace that causes us to fall flat on our face. We don't like to think of it in those terms. Surely God would not bring failure into my life. Yes, he would. To bring us back into himself. Failure is hard. It hurts. But it's not final. 
You see, God uses this failure, may even caused it to show Abram that he needed God. Because even then, God was gracious. Notice verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah. God worked to protect his promise. See, God would provide what is needed, when it was needed, to accomplish his plan. So Abraham learned. He learned to trust God. But it came at a cost. Because notice, when he is confronted, he is confronted and rebuked by Pharaoh. What is this you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me the truth? Why did you say she is your sister? Now here she is. Take your wife and go. And ironically, in God's grace, Pharaoh did not ask for any of the material things back. It was like, I just want to get rid of you. Keep the sheep, keep the camels, keep the servants, and just go. He's kicked out of the country. But Abraham had learned this, to trust God. And we're going to see time and time again that Abraham learned from this. Now, he still wasn't perfect. We'll get to that a little bit later in chapter 20. But the fact is, right after this, we see a change in Abram. When Abraham has an issue with Lot, he doesn't try to control the situation. He doesn't develop a master plan. He says, Lot, you choose. Even after that, when Lot is captured by a league of 14 different kings and Abram acts to rescue his nephew, and after the battle is over, he allows Lot to choose. He doesn't try to manipulate. He doesn't develop a scheme. He doesn't lie. He says, I'll trust God no matter what you choose. Abraham stumbled, but he learned to trust. What about us? What is your response when fear begins to rise? What's your response when you fail? Will you let that failure define you, or you, will you remember that you are defined by the grace of God? See, life is challenging. I had this image come to my mind as I was preparing this. It's an image of a, a believer who is making his way on a journey, and he's climbing a mountain. The mountain is steep. It's covered with ice, much like an Everest. And at some point, the believer slips and falls and begins sliding down the mountain. But somehow, miraculously, the fall is arrested. It stops. The believer's laying there with a choice. I can quit and just lay here on the side of the mountain and be done with it. Or I can get up and start the climb again. But it's icy. It's hard. And then I remembered something. In the description in Ephesians chapter 6 of the armor the believers to put on, his feet are placed in the boots of the peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Roman soldier's boots were like cleats. So that in the muck and the mire of the battlefield, they could gain traction. And as we start the icy climb back up, it is the gospel, the good news of God's love that gives us traction to keep climbing. Not our own strength, but His.
not our own moral ability, but His righteousness. It is the gospel that gives us hope. Because Abraham turns. You retrace his steps in chapter 3. He went back to the Negev. He went back to Bethel where his tent had been at the beginning. He came back home. I invite you to do the same. Would you bow with me in prayer now? Father, we are separated from Abraham by almost 5,000 years. But Lord, our hearts are like his in many ways. We struggle. Circumstances cause us to become afraid because they remind us that we're not really in control. So Father, I pray that at that moment that all of us encounter, you will draw us into yourself. That we won't compromise, that we'll learn from the life of Abraham. Instead of developing our scheme and, Father, our plans, that we'll trust you. And we'll rely on the gospel of peace to give us traction to keep moving forward. Grant this, Lord, we pray to the glory of your name.